This episode is in partnership with Authority Magazine. Authority Magazine, a medium publication, is devoted to sharing in-depth and interesting interviews featuring people who are authorities in business, pop culture, wellness, social impact, and tech. As soon as I mentioned Sleepless in Seattle, I know you're going to prick up your ears. And today we're so fortunate to introduce you to the fellow who wrote the screenplay to that film, Jeff Arch. Jeff is, of course, so much more, a self-taught writer who now has a novel under his belt. Let's meet this man who so clearly can pull all our heartstrings. Jeff, welcome to Believe in People. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, before we ask the obvious question about the writer's struck and strike the, the struck, yeah, probably and tentative historic, they say deal, though, I think that the word historic should refer to uh, poorly, you know, how poorly writers are being paid historically. Um, how did you get into writing in the first place? Since I was this littlest kid and learned how to do it. Um, I was the youngest kid in a family. I was the youngest of five, you know, not three boys seven cousins everything rolled downhill to me nobody listened to anything but um i noticed if i wrote something down they would stop and pay attention and uh so i started i think the first things i started doing were i had a black magic marker and white paper and i would just write things i would write signs and one day i think i noticed that somebody was laughing from another room and I think one of my parents had shown somebody or somebody showed somebody something that I wrote like a week before that, just something I scribbled and they were laughing and I got it like, wow, you, you, you did that a week ago. And, and so not only did it have an impact when you did it, but there's a, this is what royalties were. I didn't know anything about money, but this is getting paid again for work that you've already done. And I could just see that um, I was getting attention and feedback for it. You know, I, I, you know, while somebody's reading your stuff, you have them and uh, it became a weapon. It just became, you know, I can make people laugh and then they'll get out. They'll be out of my face. Uh, but I really did notice that uh, people were not really listening to what I said. But if I wrote it down, they would stop and look at it and then it would have a lasting value sometimes. So I thought this is a good way to communicate. Well, what a, I mean, what a profound sort of thing that laughter is considered a royalty. I mean, that's wow. Or if they cry, it's just I wasn't into writing tragedy yet, you know. But, <laughs> if, you know, like, but um, yeah, I mean, laughter. The ability to make me to make people laugh probably saved me from a lot of bullies and um, a lot of, you know, abuse that other people that I would might have gotten otherwise. Um, you could you could keep people away and you could bring them in with the same thing, the ability to make them laugh. So it's a drug getting to make somebody laugh is the anybody that does it can just tell you it's the coolest feeling in the world. And, you know, just get on an airplane. And you, before everybody was trying to kill each other on airplanes, you'd always hear somebody really like forcibly laughing and somebody wasn't really, but everybody wants to laugh. And so your, your market is everyone on the planet. And Jeff, it's so true, right? And 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 yet you have to, there are really smart, funny guys. I mean, you have to be really, uh, and I, I've learned this through my family, you have to be really clever, I mean, to be able to get to be funny. Do you find that? 
Clever is a good word. When you said smart, I had a little bit of, I'm, yeah. not, as, I'm not as smart as a lot of those guys, but I can do clever. And um, I just, when you said clever, I heard my, my mother's voice. She, she said something of mine was clever. I think maybe before I really knew what the word was, but it just had a good feeling. And I thought clever might be a good thing to be, okay. you know, but it, it's not something you can say, I'm going to be clever. No. <laughs> it's, it's just how it comes out. And, and it comes out. And when that's a word you hear kind of repeatedly, um, but, you know, clever and wit and stuff, that's not as prized as it used to be. You know, it's um, it's just going to be hammer on the nail funny. And I don't really do that very well. So with me, it's like a you're kind of kind of be involved in the whole thing. And then a laugh will show up. I don't really do jokes. Don't really know how you know, I watch sitcoms where it's just joke. And I, I admire that, but I don't have that in me. Well, there's a lot of that, too, where they just like beat you over the head in order to try to make you laugh, which I think is probably what you're describing. It's but uh, my my my, uh, my question is that you throughout the story that you've just told us about your upbringing or what have you, you actually had to take a couple of risks in order to become a writer. Is that correct? Well, yeah, everybody, you have to risk your, your, your sanity, your, your social standing, because you tell people you're a writer and, you know, no one says, go for it, man. <laughs> you know, you're meant for this and the world needs more writers. You know, nobody says that. Uh, I don't know if anybody who, I mean, maybe some minor percentage amount of families, but if someone says, I want to be a writer, I want to be an artist. You know, I grew up in a community where everybody appreciated the arts as long as you didn't want to be an artist. <laughs> And um, when you said that's, you know, I never even used that word. Um, I, I learned early on, I forget who said this, but uh, they said, if you're an artist, it's going to come out in everything you do. So don't worry about, you know, being an artist. Uh, so from that, I, I sort of, you know, learn a craft. And, you know, if you're cooking, it's going to come out in your cooking. If you're, even if you're folding laundry and you're an artist, you're going to fold it differently than someone who isn't. So I don't worry about the artist part to whatever degree of, talent i've been given in that area that only comes out through knowing crap so when i teach and stuff it's all about crap you can absolutely teach somebody the craft of writing the same way you can teach them the craft of painting and the craft of music and the craft of acting some people are going to get it and some people aren't yeah you can yeah. learn you can learn the architecture of anything but whether you have an inclination towards it that's that's the question jeff what writers inspired you Most of my influences were um, probably screenwriters for movie dialogue. Growing up hearing movie and TV dialogue my whole life, you know, generally back then movie dialogue was better than TV dialogue. Um, but the rock and roll poets, those were my teachers. Um, Paul Simon, Lennon and McCartney, you know, Jagger and Richard, uh, the guys in the band, uh, Joni Mitchell. They they were they were able to crunch. Um, images into these tiniest phrases and they they had a rhythm and music to them and uh so you know i was nine when the beatles came out so i grew up with um not just not just rock and roll but stuff where they decided we could put meaning into this and uh so just th those and, and in terms of like actual writers john steinbeck for sure when mm -hmm. I read, I read East of Eden when I was in college. I just put it off somebody's shelf, and I read it, and I went, "Holy shit!" Like, my God, <laughs> my God! Somehow that guy, um, 
just the bedrock values that he had seemed to really, I felt like I had them too. Hmm. And, and um, you know, like I can read Bukowski and I can really love his stuff, but we don't have the same bedrock shit going on. But Steinbrecht was just so deeply rooted in integrity and, and, and kindness and what is good and how hard it is to be good and, and how painful our mistakes can be. So I didn't know that at the time I just went and I didn't even know what he was doing. And said, how the hell is he doing this? And, um, Obviously, for my generation, yeah, Catcher in the Rye, Catch-22, those were huge. Yeah, Catcher in the Rye reads, I read it a couple of years ago, all in one, all in one sit. And that reads like one unbroken thought. Yeah. And you know, you know, when I read it in seventh or eighth grade, it sounded, but you know damn well it wasn't written as one unbroken thought. And I went up, once I read it for the first time as a professional, and, and knew what what he was doing. It was just blown away. So there's a lot of there's a lot of yeah, definitely Salinger. You know, I I, I filter it through all my Pennsylvania stuff, but I learned a lot from him, and I steal hmm. a lot from him. <laughs> you know, you mentioned um, and uh, kudos to uh, Canada for you mentioning not only the band but Joni Mitchell, and mm-hmm. we're talking about artists and. You know, Joni Mitchell describes herself not so much as a songwriter, but as a as a painter. I'm a lonely painter. I live in a box of paints, yada, yada. Um, how does how does all of that influence wind up being sleepless in Seattle? Oh, yeah. Good how does question. that work? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't I think, honest to God, you know, we. If you did know, you'd bottle it. Well, I think what I could bottle is that each one of us, if you know, I saw this phrase once, you know, nobody can decide whose ear God whispers into. And 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 I think each one of us who comes to this is given at least one story. That's all theirs. And, you know, I work with a lot of writers and it's so funny because they're coming up with all this stuff out of their head and it's, you know, concept this and and I'll say, tell me something about yourself. Then they'll tell me something that's just completely normal to them. But I'm going, oh my God, tell that, you know, because it's right in front of them. And it's just there. And so everybody was given one. I, I really feel lucky because I think I was given three. And Sleepless was, they didn't come in that order, but Sleepless was the first one to happen. And um, uh, the first one happened. I don't know, five years before Sleepless and the second one happened three years before Sleepless. But what were if, they, Jeff? What were they? One one is what I'm doing right now, Attachments. That story came to me in 1988 and I started writing it as a book in 1998 and it came out in 21. So I've had a long time with those characters in my head and right now I'm adapting it for the screen. And when we get to the strike, we'll talk about that. But um, the other is just this... Um, extremely 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 personal uh in first person i never had the guts to write in first person and i've been waiting until i had the talent until i had the um until the time just felt right to do that it is extremely personal and extremely it's the kind of thing you have to have a whole career behind you to get people to believe what you're about to tell them yes the thing that happened to me first is the thing i'm gonna have to write last and that'll be it when i'm done with that i'm done but you know sleepless came out of just really frustration with the craft and wanting to write a romantic comedy and knowing that you have to, to write any kind of a love story. You got to know what's going to keep two people apart. 
and this was 1990 and everything was so fake and phony and spilling coffee and they go to the same boardroom and he's a bike messenger and she opens the cab door and knocks him down then they got a bicker for 60 pages and the the montage and and i was trying to come up with one of those and i couldn't and i was getting it was just one night i decided i'm walking into this room and coming out with a love story and it was getting later and later and this is pretty I'm in California. I can say this. There, there was this was in Virginia at the time, but there was a skylight, and it was a cold night in January, and there were all these stars, and I was getting really frustrated. And I just stopped and took a breath, and I looked up and I said, "For every star in the sky, there's a good idea, and there's a good idea for every star in the sky." And then I just sat there and I tried to think of how I can get these two people to meet in the beginning and clash, and it was so frustrating. And I just said, "Screw it." I did not use the word "screw." And um, I said, they're not even going to meet. And I got so mad at these characters that I didn't even know yet that I just said, you don't even deserve to meet. Screw it, you guys. And um, that felt kind of neat. And then I thought, well, what if I can do one where they don't? I'd had a way earlier idea of two people who, who are talking on the phone all the time for business and they don't know. And then they sort of that was an idea for a play. But I sort of remembered you had this thing about a love story where people don't meet until the end. And then I thought, well, what if they meet, they don't meet, but they do meet on the last page on top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day and kaboom. And after that, and it really was like sitting there and having stars fall into my lap from, from the sky. And it just came all together in like one night. Wow. You know, the basics of an idea. He's a widower. You know, I'd seen a TV show where that took place on a houseboat in Seattle. And I thought that'd be cool do something like that one day. And and there was somebody in my town who worked for a regional newspaper who was um, engaged to her boyfriend, who was the publisher. I thought I can use that. And my best friend at the time was an architect who was remodeling houses. And I thought, okay, I'll use that. So an architect and a houseboat, a journalist across the country. And at the time, I, didn't, I, I moved out to LA in my 20s and I moved back east to get married and I was going back and forth a lot. And I noticed that every time I got to L.A. and rented a car, it would always be tuned to KNX, I think, or one of the um, I think that was all news radio, but one of the ones that had talk stuff. And there was this lady psychologist like it was always like one in the afternoon by the time I flew from the east. And, and it wasn't Dr. Laura. It was kind of pre Dr. Laura. But she was talking about some pretty hot shit, you know, <laughs> on phone with women at, you know, one in the afternoon. And they're talking about orgasms and this and that. And I'm just driving like, this is kind of early for this. And, but I never, I just kind of remembered that, you know, like what's going to connect these two people while well, she hears them on the radio and what's going to make him call a radio station. And once I got that ending, I tell you, it's craft. Everything is okay. How do you get there? So every decision was, you know, you know, you got to get to, you got to get to the spot by page 120 or we're done. So it, it went pretty quickly. Wow. Well, of course, um, it's never too early for that in terms of what you were just talking about. But um, <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you, uh, when you're talking about the, all the stars in the sky and uh, each one has a story or what have you, tell us a little bit about how people have been enduring this uh, strike a writer's strike in Hollywood because um, not everyone can hit a home run like you've just described. Um, how are they, how do people get by 
when when their star hasn't been discovered and named i don't know the 11 years it took me um felt like forever <clears throat> and uh you know i had another i had another life i was teaching karate and you know i had a small business I was teaching high school and i was teaching taekwondo and i was doing okay but i had that you know i hate discretion to fall back on so i didn't find something to fall back on until i was in my 30s but um what I think of now is like the some production assistant on Colbert or Seth Meyers, these late night shows, you know, where they've been out of work for six weeks now and, and all the ripple effect. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I don't think people understand what writers go through. I don't think they understand that. Um, yes. Every year there are what 15 categories and five movies in each cat. So 75 or a hundred movies that we all hear about that we celebrate at the Oscars and the golden globes and all these places. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are writing and not getting paid. There are a lot of people who are writing who, whatever they get paid, it doesn't last long enough. Um, you have to keep doing it. And especially TV writers with an eight, with an eight episode or 10 episode season. Now it's different than 33 weeks. So they might have to work on three shows in a year and just to, just to live in LA or live in New York. And you sort of, especially in TV, you have to live in LA or New York feature writers, you know, we can fake it. We can write anywhere and come in for meetings when we have to. Uh, but you can't write TV. You know, you can't be sitting in Denver writing a sitcom. You've got to be in L.A. or New York. And the rents are ridiculous and schools are ridiculous and gasoline. You got to get all over. the. I mean, it's a lot of money. And, and I think public sentiment still has us pegged as a bunch of whiny little, you know, um, spoiled kids who get to sit around like this all day long and, you know, I can't tell you, I'm, I'm barefoot now. I don't think I've worn a pair of shoes. I mean, most of my adult life, I've been able to spend barefoot. And people, even in offices, even like in the studios, resent that because they, there's something about writers where they just kind of resent our freedom. They resent our independence. They resent our ability to do the same thing with the different things with the same words that we all have. Um, and I'm, They laugh at your jokes. They laugh at our jokes, but they think it's the actors that said the jokes. Yeah, that's right. You know, when 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 somebody does something really funny on a show, no one says, man, that's good writing. They're going to say Jerry Seinfeld's really funny. And, and no one, no one, you know, they're not connecting that somebody sat there and hammered that out. And you know, Jerry's a writer, but in another case, you know, hammered it out and hammered it out and hammered it out. And they always say it all starts with the writing, but um, it, they don't act like it when it comes to contract time. Wow, that's so true. And then, and Jeff, um, so when you're teaching kids or students or up and coming uh, writers, um, what do you say to them? Like the reality of it? Cause I know there isn't, there's so much misconception around writing because they see sort of the stars in their eyes. What do you, what do you tell them apart from writing? Just write. I tell, I tell them the reality of it. And I said, this is what you're up against. Not, not to dis. I don't think I've tried to discourage a single person, no matter like how some people have, a lot of higher opinions of their work than they than than the work deserves but to me i just say here's where you are in the timeline here's who you are in the river you know if you want to get here you're here other people are here but once you get in the river you're in the same process everybody else is in and the distance from where you are now to where you want to go here's what's in the way so just like any character you're writing you gotta decide is it worth it how much punishment can you take um where will you find the rewards because if you wait until something sells and is a big hit to feel like you have a reward, it's never going to come. And also you'll have spent the entire time up until then being unhappy. So you're not really going to know how to handle the event. So um, 
you know, we have to find our happiness and our centeredness from the doing of the work, not from the result. And all we you were talking, um, you were speaking earlier about, you know, Steinbeck and of course the, the, the writers of musical lyrics that influenced you. Um, dovetailing that with, uh, with the fact that we were talking about the writer's strike as well. I mean, we are now, um, you know, I, I read all those books as well. And I read them at a time in my life where I could sit down and open a good book like, like East of Eden or Grapes of Wrath or what have you, sit down and read that. And, and someone was painting a picture that I was reading that I could see, that I could smell, that I could identify with. The, the, the music that you were speaking about earlier, um, you could listen to those songs, you could feel it, you could think about your best girl, you could conjure up a best girl in Seattle if you wanted to, or someone on a houseboat. Today, and maybe I'm going to sound like an old fart or something, but I, I mean, nobody buys CDs. I used to save my allowance or get my paper route and go down and buy like, you know, and buy Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild or something at the disc shop in Scarborough, Ontario, and go home and listen to it a thousand times. Now I can get anything I want. I can get anything. I can get anything so much that I have too much. It's like if you like chocolate cake, I've got a I've got like an Empire State Building of chocolate cake that I can eat whatever I want. What's yeah, you know, what's you know, happened? Well, I don't want to say progress has happened, but 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 progression has happened. Progression of technology, and we have lost a lot of things. I mean, a carefully constructed album used to tell a story just in the way the songs were the order, and now you just play any song you want. I mean. Nobody of this generation knows what it's like to have to sit through three songs you don't like to get to the one you do, because, you know, everybody's sitting back and they're all stoned and like the record players over there. And here comes I don't even want to, you know, Maxwell Silver Hammer. You don't want to hear that. <laughs> you want to get you want to get to the next song. <laughs> ding, ding. But, um, you know, so I think what we're missing and, and it's a bigger conversation, you only have 20 minutes is is storytelling um there are whole generations now that since reality tv thanks to the 1988 writers strike since reality tv came in and they're pushing these you know and they're pushing drama you know high drama you know re reaction drama like if a table isn't flipped over it's not a good episode so everybody's going from zero to 60 and it's all about putting people in real people in situations that are heightened but there are whole people, whole generations now growing up without a story, you know, a, you know, a, a scripted story where people go through stages and there are moral choices that have to be made. And, and, and there's, there's some subtlety and there's some, you know, it's not so black and white. And that I think is probably fragmenting the generations and the culture as much as anything that people really kind of aren't getting stories now. They're just getting behavior and it's not put in a context of choices and, and sacrifice and you know the thing that the thing that makes us you know really human deep down human not just yeah. performing well and jeff and hopefully you're teaching that i mean because i mean how do you feel about the industry right now i know you're kind of you have one more in you i think right apart from two more i got two yeah two more. Uh, and i'm glad i'm glad i'm where i am right now yeah. it's, it's really you know I, the the mathematics i mean i'm 68 the mathematics of this are not fun but i am 
the way the world is now, really happy that I'm closer to the exit than, you know, than, than I am because I wouldn't want to be 30 now. I wouldn't want to be 20 now. I've got a seven-year-old granddaughter. I'm worried about her all the time. Um, just like what kind of world is she going to face? Uh, I don't, she's in first grade and I think they actually have had a shooter drill, but they didn't call it that. But like why? You know, this, this, these are kids that have had two years of, a, of an invisible virus that might kill them. Now they have human beings that might come in with guns and kill them. And like, what kind of anxiety? We had the bomb. We had the Russians. And if we didn't worry about that, then it was just like, who are we worried about at school that wanted to beat us up? That was pretty much it. Or who at home was beating us up, you know. But um, the one global out there problem that we couldn't control was the Russians in the bomb. And now, my God, um, what they have to live through. So they're getting resilience, but these are it's a culture we don't understand. So I'm glad to be closer to the exit, even though I'm you know, not crazy about leaving. It's a good world, but I'm glad of being closer to the exit. I don't know how they're going to get through climate change and climate migration. And everybody's nobody's talking about, you know, we got an ocean on this side and an ocean on that side. And there is technology to get the salt out of the water. And everybody yeah. can have enough to drink and irrigate their crops. And all anybody's saying is it's too expensive. Yeah. I didn't hear anybody bitching about how expensive nuclear was. And I didn't hear any, you know, and they've been saying that about solar forever. And it's just a way to keep it from happening. But um, if they wait and, you know, it'll still be, it'll be more expensive if they wait another 20 years. If they had been doing it all along, just we have all the water we need. And whatever mm -hmm. we're going to do to react to not having water is going to be more expensive than figuring it out well especially so, if you live in the desert that's, yeah. that's the shit that just drives me nuts like the solution is right there and he just how does a, how does a guy who you know is has made his name writing a, a, a screenplay that basically is a story of hope uh, between <laughs> people who've never met so, and and that i mean that's like the greatest story of hope between these two people how do you keep up hope in this day and age like the one you just, just described? I'm not giving you any ideas for your next screenplay or anything, but how do you do that? Anybody can be happy on a good day, you know, and and it's hope and faith and stuff like that are tested when shit is bad. Mm. You know, to, 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 you know, I lost a friend several years ago and I and I remember sitting outside of, of Vons in Santa Barbara and you got mountains in Santa Barbara, they're just so beautiful. And they were lighting up all purple. And I had I just bought these peaches. And something was stirring up in me all day long. And I got up at like four in the morning and I wrote this really long thing. Um, not a long thing, but like a one-page memorial. It was like a, it came out as a poem. And I just remember this line. It's easy to believe that peaches are ripe. It's, it's easy to believe when peaches are ripe. And that was the basic thing that felt the whole thing. It says, when things are great, it's easy to have faith. Well, what happens when your friend's car jumps a fence and he's killed in a second? That's when you need to have faith. So when there's, it's easy to have hope when your team's up ahead, eight runs and, you know, <clears throat> hope and faith are things that you dig down and have when things are rotten. So, or I might just be wired to be optimistic. I mean, I hear Sagittarians, I'm December baby. I'm just here. I'm heard that we're wired to be optimistic. So maybe it's nothing I can take any credit for. It's just, you know, it's the stardust, the way it was arranged in me, different than someone, you know, who's a Leo or something. And, you know, but you have to, you know, when you give up hope, 
that's it. You're done. You give, if you lose hope and you lose curiosity, you have officially gotten old and, and um, you're not going to be able to contribute much to the world. It's true. And Jeff, so do you believe in people? Absolutely. You, you see so many, you know, look, we're, if you stay off cable news, you know, <laughs> and, and, and look, there are really, really bad things happening, but every day you see these acts of kindness and you see, you know, I think the first thing I remember, this is years and years and years ago, the first time that we all heard that some kid in school had cancer and lost all his hair and like the entire football team shaved their heads. That's who we are. Yeah. That's who hey, we are. You know, and I, um, I actually did a story when I was still with NBC about a young boy whose father had cancer. This was in uh, Iowa, I believe, somewhere. And uh, um. So the young boy in school shaved his head and they made fun of him in the school. And um, anyway, then he was celebrated in the school as a result of his shaving his head. This sounds familiar. Yeah. What's, what's, what's the name? It was a, I think it was in the town where the windows come from. Pella. Pella. That was the name of the place. But anyway, yeah, I did a story like that. But, you know, and that's like there's stories are there are stories like that out there everywhere. You just gotta, you just gotta scratch the surface uh, and get underneath the Russians and the bomb stuff. You know, this is a really fractious country. Obviously, I've driven across the country um, eight times since 2016, and you know, a flag on a bumper sticker and the word "freedom" on a bumper sticker aren't the same as they used to be. And you're sort of like saying, "This is the team I'm on," and unlike the way things used to be in this country, this is the team you're not on. And, but so on a, and a, on a categorical level, you know, this, I'm not their friend, you know, but you know, they see me driving through, they're going to label me the same way I'm labeling them, but people one-on-one, -on -one, they're really kind, you know, nobody wants to, I mean, yes, there are people that are actually out there trying to mess up each other's day. And, you know, that's the squeaky wheels. Like people are generally really kind. They want to be kind. They want to do the right thing. Um, we're just getting so squeezed and so pressured and so misdirected about what the right thing is. Yeah. A lot of people now think the right thing is whatever's wrong for the other person. That's not the right thing. But that's what people are being taught and, and, and demonstrated right now, that what's right for me has to be wrong for somebody else. And what's, you know, what's right for them can't be right. Well, Jeff, I have to say you made our day, so we want to thank you for that. We're grateful and really grateful for your time. Thanks for this. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Kevin, I'm going to research that show. I'm pretty sure I did see that. Well, um, there's a lot of them out there. There are a lot of them out there. <laughs> 40 years in the business, I imagine. Yeah. I'm going to do some Googling on you, sir. Yeah, you, wow. should check, you should check them out. I'm going to get an education in Kevin today. Thanks. Uh, thank you for Thanks, a, Jeff. Good, a good dose of hope. Okay. Take care. Well, there's a guy who had a dream who didn't give up on it, didn't give up hope uh, in his 20s, started trying to write for for a living and uh, really uh, turned out to be one of those stars in the galaxy. And it was also nice to listen to him talk about all the other stars that are still burning out there waiting to be discovered and named. And I think for those who are aspiring writers and uh, and want to get into this business, um, there is hope. But I want you to understand, too, that overnight success took Jeff 11 years. So be patient and believe in yourself. 
And if you believe in us, please subscribe to our podcast, Believe in People, because we would love to have you as a subscriber. Thank you for listening and have, or, or watching and have the best day. Believe in people. Thank you.